Greetings from Fort Knox, a 2018 Great American Defense Community. I'm Colonel C.J. King, the Fort Knox Garrison Commander. And I'm Jim Iacocca, the President and CEO of the Knox Regional Development Alliance. Welcome to ADC Live. Good afternoon and welcome to ADC Live. And we are here. Sorry, we had a little malfunction there at the beginning, but I'm Tim Ford, ADC CEO, and I'm joined here by our Executive Director, Matt Boron. Happy to be with you in person. Thank you. Uh, you know, one year into a, a pandemic, you think we'd have this uh, virtual stuff figured out, but I, I guess that would be a lot too soon. Uh, a big thank you to our folks out in Fort Knox, uh, Kentucky for that opening video. You know, we've got a, a stacked show for folks today. We've got Congressman Derek Kilmer joining us, Congresswoman Elaine Luria joining us, and Air Force Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Relations Energy Environment. Big show. Well, and before we jump into to all the great guests and segments we have today, we did want to mention that it's actually been a busy news day here in D.C. today and yesterday. Yesterday, First Lady Jill Biden set forth the priorities of the newly relaunched Joining Forces Initiative, a White House program that to support military families, veteran families, caregivers and survivors. The um, under Biden's leadership, Joining Forces will center on the needs of military families in three main areas, employment and entrepreneurship, military child education, health and well-being. Um, prior to this announcement, the First Lady had actually already made the appointment of the uh, executive of the initiative's executive director, Rory Brocious, and she is a special assistant to the president now and is also a spouse to a Marine Corps veteran and previously served as a deputy director of joining forces during the Obama-Biden administration. We are looking forward, hopefully, to have Rory join us in the weeks ahead. I had a chance to speak with Rory a few weeks ago. She's great. Uh, knows this space very well. I think she's going to do some good stuff. Good, good. Uh, you know, we also learned that tomorrow is the day we'll see the skinny budget released. Uh, the skinny budget, for those folks who don't know, is the top line numbers from the administration before the full release of the president's budget. While I won't go into specific details, it will give us at least the first glimpse at the new administration's approach to DOD funding. Well, that will be interesting. And a lot of people are going to be looking for those numbers to really get a sense of where this administration's heading with DOD funding. But now let's get started with today's show. It's our pleasure to welcome ADC President Joe Driscoll from his base in Missouri. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, uh, Tim and Matt and to everyone across the country. I'm speaking from the state capitol in Jefferson City, Missouri. Glad to join you. It looks amazing, Joe, and we're glad to have you here. I, I know we have a, a very busy show and important guests waiting. Um, I'll let you two lead the discussion with our first guest, and I'll rejoin you in a minute for the headlines. So today, our first guest is Congressman Derek Kilmer. Uh, Congressman Kilmer represents Washington's 6th, 6th District, which includes Navy Subbase Bangor and Navy Naval Station Bremerton. Now, the congressman serves on the powerful House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Committee. He has been a real champion for ADC and defense communities across the country. He helped secure funding for the defense community infrastructure program in both FY20 and FY21. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Matt, good to be with you. Congressman, uh, I'm uh, speaking to you from uh, the great state of Missouri. We're a long way from Bremerton and other parts of your district, but I want to start by thanking you for your leadership on this issue, particularly uh, because Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, in my state, was one of the first DSIP recipients. Uh, we're certainly looking ahead to future projects. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on where you think the DSIP program is heading? 
Well, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll see it uh, included in the president's budget. Um, we don't know quite yet, as you heard at the top of the show, that the, the, um, there's been a delay in the introduction of the, the budget. I'm obviously a big fan of the program and uh, um, the potential for impact for defense communities is really substantial. In fact, I recently sent a letter to the administration asking that the DSIP program be included in the president's budget and for an increase in funding for the program. Uh, From a congressional standpoint, during this pandemic, we've been doing the very important job of plugging the holes, so to speak, and just trying to stop the bleeding to provide as much support for the folks we represent uh, during this health crisis and this economic crisis. But as we start to shift into this next phase here in trying to get our economy up off the ground, I think it makes a lot of sense to reinvest in our communities and get folks back to work. And I think DSIP can be a really important part of that. You know, that, that brings up an interesting question. If if we don't see it uh, in the president's budget request, do you think there's enough support in both the House and the Senate uh, to still get money for the program? I'm really hopeful that it will be in the president's budget. But if it's not, I'm confident that we'll see broad support by Democrats and Republicans in both the House and in the Senate. Part, again, because you're just seeing the impact. That If you look at my district, you heard about the um, extraordinary naval presence in uh, our neck of the woods. And we're really happy to have that. Uh, if you talk to our naval leadership, one of the things that keeps them up at night is a little stretch of road uh, right near Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. For the civilians uh, in proximity to the shipyard, um, they, they get a headache sitting in traffic there. Um, it's a very congested area during the morning and afternoon rush hour. It can add more than 30 minutes uh, on some days for just a couple miles of roadway. The Navy's concern is more around resiliency. If there's uh, a tsunami, if you rising sea levels, the potential impact could be profound for the shipyard, for Naval Base Kitsap, uh, you know, and could really affect access. And so the rationale, but, you know, so that I'm just giving you one parochial example from my neck of the woods. Um, Reality, though, is you can tell a similar story in Democratic and Republican districts all over this country. And You know, I think talking to my colleagues, they understand folks back home support the men and women in uniform and their families. They want to help make sure our military installations are ready for the national security challenges of the future. And many times that means investing in community infrastructure upgrades and improvements that support readiness, support the mission. Um, You know, and, and, and it can be tough for communities to bear that financial burden on their own. DSIP is unique because it allows the DOD to partner with local communities and share those costs of those upgrades. And that can make it that can be a real difference maker. And I think it's a difference that members of Congress, again, both Republicans and Democrats in the House and in the Senate. I know in the Senate, Senator Tester, the chair of the Senate Appropriations Defense Subcommittee, he's a strong supporter of the program. Um, His fellow defense subcommittee member, uh, Steve Baines, who's a Republican on the House side, You know, I sent a letter to the administration outlining DSIP as one of my top priorities. That letter was also supported by uh, Representative Strickland and Cartwright, you know, who are on the House Armed Services Committee. Um, Cartwright's on approach with me. Strickland uh, is on Armed Services. Uh, Jason Crow from Colorado has also been very supportive of the program. So you start to piece together folks from all over the country seeing the value of this program uh, and what it can mean in support of our military installations and the communities around them. Uh, I think that gives me hope that we'll see this included. 
you know, if it's one thing that I think is important is just how uh, it has driven home the point that you have to approach installation issues from a one community perspective, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's climate change, whether it's racial inequity, uh, all of these issues don't stop at the fence line. And I think DSIP helps make that case. Uh, so thank you very much. J Joe, I know you had some other questions. Yeah, Congressman, again, thank you for your perspective. Um, I want to ask you a question that, that I think is on the minds of a lot of our members and and um, uh, folks around the country that they deal with and, and uh, talk to all the time, and that is uh, infrastructure. Uh, there's a, obviously uh, the president's infrastructure proposal we know about as public. We know there are various plans in Congress on in, in both houses, and, and we don't know exactly how all those are coming together, but uh, other than DSIP, is there a pathway through infrastructure for uh, defense community support, uh, um, infrastructure upgrades? Uh, it's something that's a little bit opaque to us. And I wonder if you could address that. Bet. Well, I, I have a lot of hope. Um, I think President Biden took an important step forward uh, with his American Jobs Plan. You know, the, because there's clear need and Congress has spent a lot of time talking about infrastructure issues, but hasn't we haven't seen a tremendous amount of progress on that. You know, the American Society of Civil Engineers has graded American infrastructure as a C minus, which uh, if above my head competing for my um, Wi-Fi came home with that on their report card, I wouldn't be happy. But we're seeing that when it comes to our country, as it applies to failing roads and bridges, you know, sewer and water infrastructure certainly broadband, as I just mentioned. Um, you know, we also have some major gaps that we need to fill, including uh, addressing climate change and trying to enhance our resilience in the face of, uh, of climate change, mass transit. And so we got to begin to look to reinvest in our communities, not just to plug up the gaps created by this horrible pandemic. And I think that's where the American Jobs Plan comes in to modernize our roads and bridges and ports and transit systems. Um, for clean water to bridge that digital divide. And I think to your point, as we, you know, we'll, the, the, the president has put forward a plan, but now the expectation is that Congress will help fill in some of those details. And as those details get fleshed out, I certainly support the idea that defense communities um, have part of that conversation, whether that be specifically uh, explicitly through DSIP um, or more broadly, just looking at how we target additional money uh, to defense communities so that we can support those communities, so that we can support the, the mission uh, of our military installations and those who serve them. Well, Congressman, uh, we're, about, we're about out of time here. So I, I really appreciate you joining us today. Your continued leadership and supporting defense communities has truly been invaluable. Uh, and I hope we can continue to, to count on your support in the future. You got it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, sir. Thank now you. let's head uh, let's head to Tim uh, for a look at today's headlines. Good afternoon. It's Thursday, April eighth, and here are your headlines powered by On Base. As concerns over the speed of DOD appointments grow, the president announced three new names for key department leadership positions late last week. We shared this in On Base on Monday, but we wanted to dig deeper into one of these nominations. 
nominated as to serve as the new Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment is Michael Brown. Brown currently leads the Defense Innovation Unit, the Silicon Valley-based arm of the Pentagon that builds national security innovation base. He's also the former CEO of Symantec Corporation, as in the cybersecurity firm that protects your computer from viruses. But for our viewers, it's also important job, since Brown, if confirmed, will actually over see the newly reinstated Assistant Secretary for Energy, Installations, and Environment. No nominee for that position has been identified. Brown's job at DOD comes with a broad portfolio, but his focus on technology will be interesting to watch and see how that interacts with, with our world. Other nominations announced late last week include Mike McCord as the Pentagon's Comptroller and Chief Financial Officer. He may sound familiar, that's because McCord held the same job in the final two and a half years of the Obama administration. And Robert Moultrie, a former National Security Agency Director of Operations, has been tapped to be the new Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. So how is the Biden administration doing overall in its pace of nominations? While it may seem slow, the overall speed on identifying the nearly 1,200 government positions that require Senate confirmation is actually moving at a similar pace to previous starts for new administrations. When we look specifically at DOD, the story gets a bit starker, with only 11 of 60 Senate-confirmed positions having people nominated and or confirmed. And we still haven't seen the names for big jobs like the secretaries of each services. We think April will be a big month for DOD nominations, but the tight Senate calendar through the summer will mean that many positions, including those we deal with at, in, in the ADC orbit, will probably not be in their seat to the fall at the earliest. Last week, the website Breaking Defense reported on an ambitious new plan the Marine Corps is making to change how the service plans to equip, organize, and train over the next decade. The still unreleased 180-page document outlines initial plans to create a series of small, agile units tasked with air defense, anti-ship, and submarine warfare. While the specifics are new, the ideas have been under discussion for some years, and this is really just a planning box but it does give a good glimpse of where the Marines are headed, and there is a big focus on the, on the Pacific. A, a familiar face to ADC, the American Enterprise Institute's Mackenzie Eaglin re recently released an interesting report on how the three services are facing a significant modernization crunch and what that means for our national defense and defense communities. In the report, Eaglin and her co-author Hallie Coyne describe how fleets of ship, ships, aircrafts, vehicles, and other equipment are reaching the end of their service lives and losing combat relevance. This means that our military will be facing a massive spending spike to pay for modernization bills in the year ahead. The report states, there are no magic wands to solve this backlog and it will require new investments, thinking more strategically about U.S. commitments 
around the world. Well, why is this important to the defense community? Two important points. First, modernization means investment in our defense industries and supply chains, and that means jobs for states and communities. And modernization relies on new technologies and systems that might mean we're building stuff in different places. Second, investing in modernization has often created downward pressure on the rest of the DOD budget, and we know facilities are often the first place we go to find those dollars. So we may be facing tight budgets in the future when it comes to supporting defense infrastructure. You can find the entire 102-page report on the AEI website. Now for a quick trip around the country to see what's happening in our communities. We start today at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and to recognize this important issue inside and outside the military, the base hosted a proclamation signing and 5K run. The activities are part of the department-wide awareness effort on the issues of sexual assault, and is happening at the same time DOD has made the issue a priority and is conducting a new independent review for the Secretary Austin. On a much lighter note, while the pandemic makes big events a challenge, that didn't stop families from enjoying some Easter fun at Marine Corps Air Station Yuma. The base hosted a drive-through Easter egg event that allowed military children and their families a chance to participate in the excitement of gathering eggs, toys, and candies in a socially distant way. Our 2021 Great American Defense Communities are making headlines around the country as ADC announces this year's five communities. Community and military leaders gathered in coastal Georgia to celebrate the news of being selected this year. And announcing Altus, Oklahoma being picked, Mayor Jack Smiley said, it shows we're doing our job. In Florida, Senator Rick Scott tweeted his congratulations to Pensacola for being included in this year's GATSI program. And similar celebrations were seen in the other two communities selected this year, Great Falls, Montana, and in Everett, Washington. Is it goodbye to man's best friend or hello to robo-dogs? For this week's image of the day, we head to Tyndall Air Force Base to introduce you to the quad-legged unmanned ground vehicle, a doggish robot the Air Force is now fielding to help human security forces patrol bases and provide eyes and ears in hazardous environments. And while the robo-dog may not have a face or a tail, it does have four legs and 14 sensors meant to give it 360 degree situational awareness. And not to fear our military working dogs are not losing their jobs. They're just getting a little help from their robot friends. And Matt, while robo dogs have the technology on their side, I think their canine counterparts will always win when it comes to slobbery kisses. Back to you. Slobbery kisses. Okay, well, thank you for that awkward transition, uh, Tim. Um, April is Military Saves Month, a month-long campaign dedicated to improving the finances of military families. As we've learned during the pandemic, financial security isn't a given, even for military families. To understand this, we needed to hear directly from service members and their families. ADC's own Grace Marvin had a chance to sit down to talk to one of these families in person. Let's go there now. So in, 
In 2019, CNBC put out an article that was titled Military Families Say This is Their Top Concern. And I think when we read that title, many um, Americans thought that it would be deployment and separation. And mind you, as this was pre-COVID times, um, it was financial concerns that weigh on them more than any aspect of military life. I actually had a stroke uh, while on active duty and um, I was, you know, medically discharged out and uh, my husband was the only salary coming in. So we were a two two salary income family with three kids at the time. And so um, I had a hard time. adjusting to that because the Air Force was my identity. That was who I was. I was an NCO. I had troops. Life was good. And so when I switched over and became an Air Force spouse, I'm sorry, an Army spouse, um, things changed. So I went into a serious um, mound of what I would say was depression uh, because I had no identity. So how I dealt with my I, uh, with my depression was I shopped. I shopped online. I maxed out all of my credit cards. So um, it, it put us in a really bad funding, a financial bind. What would you, um, advice would you give your younger self when it comes to, you know, financial wellness? Oh my gosh. You know, um, I think that goes back to the community that I came from. So in in my community, financial wellness was never taught, never taught. So when I joined the military, I had all this money and 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 all this credit and good credit until I got out, you know, and I'm fanning to depression. I would um, I my my daughters, like I said, I've taught them they've got a good foundation on credit and 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 credit healthy credit. So I would definitely tell myself, you know, what I tell my kids now, if you cannot pay cash for it, you don't need it. And if you're going to have a credit card, have one that you use in case of emergency, you know, and don't get any more. I only have one now and I have a zero balance on it. Oh, that military family financial stability is critical to mission readiness. So ADC, we're going to be showcasing Military Saves Month, all of our shows uh, through this April. That's right, Matt. For today's discussion, we're pleased to welcome Jim Kim, the president of First Command Bank, where he is responsible for supporting First Command's vision of lifelong financial security for our nation's military families. Jim is a West Point graduate who served a combined 12 years on active reserve, active as a platoon leader, executive officer, and a company commander. Jim, welcome to ADC Live. We're glad you could join us today. Hi, Tim and Matt. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Jim, it's Military Saves Month, as you know, and and we know from a variety of sources that financial security of military families is important to our national security. Can you give us some insight into the financial situations that service members can find themselves in and how a bank like First Command is helping with this? Absolutely. I have two situations and happy to share some of the things that we do here at First Command. So first, uh, and without a doubt, the most common situation our advisors encounter, young service members, is the high levels of credit card debt. In those cases, we're able to offer them a low interest rate debt consolidation loan, which allows them to pay off that debt 
faster with more of their payments going to principal and less on the interest charges. So this allows them to pay off that debt faster. They could start allocating that portion of their income. Of course, that's only a temporary solution unless their advisor is able to show them how to make lasting changes in their spending and savings habits. Second, another very closely related issue is the absence of an adequate standalone emergency savings account. And I say standalone because experience has taught us that it's essential that these funds be held in an account separate from your primary uh, checking account, which you know pay for most of the recurring expenses. I'm sure you've all seen the general population statistics about the fact that majority of Americans don't have enough savings to meet an unexpected repair bill of $500. That's consistent with what we see. It's why we recommend families amount that's about equal to two to three months of income set aside in a money market or a savings account. And we also advise people to fund this account on a regular basis so that those funds are not depleted. Uh, so I would just say in summary, improving the behavior of spending less and saving more provides the greatest benefit to military families. You know, you mentioned advising, and I really took that to home. I can remember when I was an 18-year-old Army private, you know, fresh out of uh, basic training. Folks in, in my platoon, we were spending that first paycheck, you know, I think there was a four Ford Mustangs in the parking lot the very next day. Uh, and so people got into trouble with credit cards, with car loans, uh, with a whole lot of stuff. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how financial uh, the tools that you offer and how advising could be one of our strongest weapons? Absolutely, Matt. And uh, I could relate as well because that was me as a 22-year-old uh, second lieutenant in Germany. I think that is the most approach to financial advising is that we view it as a hands-on, ongoing relationship. Having financial plan is a great first step. Lots of fine companies that'll build one for you. But our experience over the years is that it's the execution of that plan over time. Most people drop the ball. That's why we like to think of our advisors as financial coaches. They don't just build you a plan and walk away. They motivate you to stay on track with your plan, help you update it. Your circumstances or your goals change. As for what particular groups are more or less inclined to take advantage of the financial advising, I don't think it's all that much different in the military than it is in the general population. Lots of people associate financial planning, really long-term objectives like retirement. As a consequence, younger people often assume that they can wait later to begin planning. So our job is to help young service members understand that one of the most critical factors investing is time. Because the more time you have, the more you can take advantage of the incredible a person who begins investing at age 25 may accumulate more than three times as much money by the time they're ready to retire than someone who waits until the age of 40, assuming they have the same rate of return. So the bottom line is start early and leverage time to your benefit. Jim, this, this last year has been unique and COVID-19 has created financial strains for many military families, whether it's the loss of a second income, dual housing because of the initial PCS halt or the need to take care of a family member. The national conversation now has shifted to vaccination and economic recovery, but from your vantage point, are, are military families Families really bouncing back, or do they still need support? Sure. Um, th thank you for that question. And uh, 
to assist with the financial strain that you talked about uh, at the outset of the pandemic, we like most banks, we offered our clients who are experiencing cash flow problems to skip payments on loans or credit card payments. Also participated in the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program, commonly known as the PPP loan. We offered loans to many of our separated or retired military-owned small businesses. On the question about military families bouncing back, based on our most recent financial behaviors index surveys of military families, along with conversations our advisors are having with clients, there is an increasing optimism about the future. But as you've said, the economic impact of COVID continues to linger for all the reasons that, so without question, some families have been much more impacted uh, than others. So this has been a time when having a personal relationship with a financial advisor have been valuable in helping families understand their unique circumstances and needs so they can adjust their financial plans to allow them to weather the impact from the pandemic. Diverse audience tuning in, uh, including both service members and their families. As a wrap up to our discussion, can you give us your best advice to a military family that hasn't taken any financial planning steps, either because they're just starting out or maybe they're overwhelmed and embarrassed like in the video we shortly uh, saw just a few minutes ago? Yeah, Matt, I think you're hitting on a very important point here. Our reluctance to meet with a financial advisor can rival our reluctance to go to the dentist, for example. You know, the prospect of sharing your personal financial information with a virtual stranger can be a little daunting, particularly if you feel like you're not where you should be. Plus, a lot of people believe that financial advisors are only interested in meeting with people who already have significant assets. And I just want to share with your audience that nothing could be further from the truth at uh, first command. Our focus is on helping young service members and their families get started on the path towards financial security. In many cases, people, they come to us with no savings and a significant amount of credit card debt. We're perfectly fine with that. Most of, of our advisors were once exactly in that same place, and they're not there to judge. So if someone is ready to commit to building plan for pursuing their financial goals, I would strongly encourage them to have a discussion with a licensed financial advisor. For those who are who aren't quite ready to make that, there are some common sense steps that they can take to prepare. And so the first one is start tracking your spending. Most people don't know where their money goes, usually surprised when they find out. Figuring that out can be the first step to eliminating wasteful spending. The second one is if you've got credit card debt, the most productive first step you can take is to come up with a specific, as well as a timeline for paying it off. One of the first things we do for a lot of new clients is to provide them with that debt consolidation loan that we talked about earlier that lowers their interest rate, allows them to pay off that loan faster. And lastly, building a savings account equal to a couple months of income, this will ensure that you don't have to unexpected expenses do come about. And unexpected expenses always arise, unfortunately, but the key is to plan ahead. So by taking these three steps right now, you'll be, be better prepared to hit the ground running. Jim, well, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a great segment. We've learned a lot about financial security that I know our members can, can help implement in their community. And again, we're, we're glad you are joining us today, and we hope to see you at another ADC event, maybe in person. Sounds good. Thank you very much. 
You know, Jim mentioned advice and statistics that we're all, we've all heard more than once, but I think it's really important to drive the message home, especially to the younger service members about the importance of financial security. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's key to remember that this just isn't a problem at the family level. Entire defense communities are affected when a family uh, can't meet their financial readiness. On our next show, we're going to be joined by our friends over at the Association of Military Banks to take a look at how communities are affected and what folks are doing to step up. Well, let's go from financial readiness to installation resilience. We like to make a lot of quick turns here in this program. I'll turn it over to you and talk a little about sort of a recap of some things that have happened the last couple of weeks. Sounds like a plan. So last week, the House Armed Service Committee had a hearing on installation resilience. They brought in the top uh, generals and admirals for each of the installation commands and asked them about uh, their different types of installation resilience challenges and specifically related to the uh, Storm Uri, which hit the South not only just only a few weeks ago. I had a chance to sit down with uh, Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who represents Virginia's second district. She was at the at the hearing. She is a Hask member of the subcommittee on readiness, and she had some pointed questions uh, for those in attendance. I, let's go ahead and take a clip from that interview. It was hammered home, you know, several times during the hearing that the services continue to take considerable risk in their installation portfolios. Um, and that as a result of this deferred maintenance, bases across the country have experienced extensive damage to infrastructure and facilities, usually as a result of uh, extreme weather or climate change, which we've seen at an alarming and increasing rate over the past few years. Um, the latest such example being when winter storm Uri uh, ravaged the southern states. Just a few episodes ago, we had the base commander from Fort Hood come on and really talk about how, you know, that storm really devastated uh, the community outside uh, and operations on the base. Um, I know that these are issues of great concern to the installations and defense communities in your district, uh, specifically sea level rise and flooding. Um, based on what you heard uh, the other day, are the services, are you confident that they understand just how much of an issue this really is? Thanks for having me uh, to, to talk about this issue. And I would say this is at the forefront of the eight major military installations here in the Hampton Roads area. Um, as you mentioned, sea level rise and recurrent flooding um, are persistent and ongoing problems. And you know some of the other things that you mentioned, you know, extreme weather events or one-time events that have long-term you know, effects to recover from those. And what I would say is that, you know, I think that our military leadership understand um, the risks for these installations, especially with regard to sea level rise and recurrent flooding. But there's just a continuous challenge uh, with the resources that DOD has um, operational versus installation. Um, and I think that's always been an, uh, an ongoing challenge to balance those resources in a way that, you know, protects the installation, which then services the operational forces that go forward. So I, I guess kind of maybe my final question is, are there other tools? You know, we've talked about DSIP. We know about, you know, the, the REPI program, the Readiness Environmental Protection Initiative, um, the joint land use studies. Uh, I know that in last year's NDAA that uh, your committee worked on the new um, military installation uh, sustainability uh, initiative that uh, requires installations to really look outside the gate and measure you know, where their resilience vulnerabilities are. What other tools and authorities could Congress create that or, or even improve? Maybe something like uh, the utilities privatization program? 
or intergovernmental support agreements? One of the things that stood out the most to me in, in our community is uh, you mentioned joint land use studies. Um, I came to learn from my coordination with the Army Corps of Engineers and our installations in local communities that we're not currently considering federal property in those joint land use studies unless there are funds provided by DOD for that coordination. So if you look here in Hampton Roads, you know, the Elizabeth River doesn't know the difference between, you know, the boundaries of the city of Norfolk, Naval Station Norfolk, the Port of Virginia. I mean, the river flows where the river will flow. And I think that, you know, in areas with large defense communities and large installations, we have to take into account that federal property, the economic impact of that federal property, um, and also how that fits into any solution for, you know, in this case, recurrent flooding problems. Um, so that is something that, you know, want to, to push for a solution to make sure that we can include that, that federal property in this analysis of, of our solutions moving forward. I want to thank the Congresswoman again for her time. That wasn't the full interview, but if you want to watch the full interview, it's posted on the ADC Live website right now. So to continue this conversation on installation resilience, we're now joined by a subject matter expert, Mark McDonough, who is the president of American Water Military Services Group. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, let's just dive right in. Uh, there was a lot to unpack there. The, the Congresswoman focused on sea level rise and flooding uh, to military installations. And as she noted, uh, investments need to be made to shore these up. Uh, but everyone is resource limited and operational risks must be balanced against installation risks. Uh, from your perspective, what are the main utility risks out there? Yeah, really, Matt, it's uh, multifold. You know, it's it's sort of and everybody's attention now to talk a little bit about climate change and climate variation and that risk, but there's actually a fundamental underlying risk of just under recapitalization of assets. So when you have that sort of baseline failure to keep your assets up in utility, you see a lot more vulnerability and uh, a lot less resiliency. And then you layer in threats like climate change. And in the case of water and wastewater, emerging contaminants, you get a multi-layered challenge that really has to be dealt with in a systemic long-term way, voids the, the uh, short-term idea of, oh, I can just put a large capital program in on this one problem dealt with at different levels. The Hask hearing and the Congresswoman both touched on the DSIP program. Uh, regarding local communities, since utilities such as electric, water, wastewater are all regional issues, how should military installations best coordinate with their local partners? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? We think a lot about the installations being ring-fenced. The 17 installations that we operate under the utilities privatization, we try and make that uh, take a very different approach and really coordinate with the communities deeply. Um, the way you should look about utilities is really from a broader inside and outside the, uh, the fence line perspective. And, and we feel like that when you have traditional utilities operating through something like utilities privatization, you really get that coordinate coordination, because it's that kind of coordination that's really going to help your resiliency ultimately. And we have this at many uh, bases across uh, the footprint where communities and the base can really work together uh, to help each other strengthen their utilities overall. So you mentioned UP, utility uh, privatization. For military bases that have this uh, arrangement, how does the funding from this contract, which is a tool in the toolbox, support resilience? Yeah, again, it goes back to this concept of 
the constant steady pace of recapitalization. The single greatest tool and the reason we were able to be so successful at places like Fort Hood dealing with URI, Fort Sill dealing with uh, winter storm URI and Fort Polk dealing with multiple hurricanes is not because we had a one-off large capital uh, expenditure on say a treatment plant, but it's really that day-to-day activity that happens with professional utilities. And the utilities privatization funding is that steady stream of money that goes into uh, the the, uh, installation, goes into the utility system. And it doesn't matter whether it's water or wastewater, it's very much the same for electric and gas. It's that steady eddy sort of approach to utilities that really rebuilds the robust resiliency and actually ends up the services get much better bang for their buck as opposed to trying to find a one-off funding mechanism through installations. Well, Mark, I I think we're about out of time, but I really appreciate your perspective here. Uh, As always, your analysis really helps us think through these uh, tough issues. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk utilities anytime you want. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mark. We got to know our next guest about five years ago when she was the Deputy General Counsel for Installations, Energy, Environment, and then as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Air Force for Installations. In 2018, 2019, we missed seeing her for some time, but she had important work being deployed in her capacity as an Army Reserve Judge Advocate. In early 2020, she became the Principal Deputy, and we actually had her join us in San Antonio. Then COVID hit and the craziness, and we have not seen each other in almost a year, but now she's back and this time as the acting assistant secretary of the Air Force. And we'll likely be in that seat like we talked about earlier for some time. It's our pleasure to welcome Jennifer Miller. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Glad you could be here. Glad to be here. So we haven't seen you in a long time. Yes. <laughs> it's, you know, even virtually. Um, so tell me, what's the last year been like for you and for the Air Force? And where do you kind of feel like you are right now? So not to minimize the horrible uh, negative side of COVID, but in terms of some of the Air Force lessons learned, I think we've actually across the Department of the Air Force, as well as Department of Defense, learned a lot of things about what we can do with teleworking. And it's kind of moved us ahead a lot more than we ever would have been without the, the crisis. Um, in, in our portfolio, we've discovered that a lot can be done remotely. In fact, I think we're actually potentially getting more bang for our buck with, with our civilians and our military being able to work remotely when possible. Things like the ability to access classified computers. Uh, and it's really driven us to look long term. What is the requirement to be in the office vice being able to work from home? And then what does that mean for our footprint and the need for office buildings, the need for administrative type facilities? It's been a much different experience at the Pentagon, I think, than a lot of our uh, Air Force bases across the nation, because of course, if you're a maintainer, you can't do much of that remotely. But for some of the office facilities, I think it'll result in more permanent long-term telework type structure. So it's been it's been a learning curve like everyone else, spending a lot more time staring at computer screens and hearing dogs bark in the background. But uh, I think we've adapted. We've adapted really well. And I would actually say we're we're pretty darn effective. And, and we have not seen the drop in, in efficiency or productiveness that some folks feared we, we might with COVID telework. Yeah, it's been interesting because everything seems to be keep, move, keep moving at the Air Force, regardless of sort of all the stuff happening in the world. So I want to hit on a couple different topics. The first, housing privatization. A lot's happened over the last year. Give us a kind of update on where the Air Force is, is meeting sort of the obligations that were laid out by Congress. 
Yeah. So um, obviously not a, not a good scenario a couple of years ago when we ended up realizing that there were some problems that we weren't tracking. And it's enough of a priority to getting after housing privatization that I still fly down once a month to Maxwell Air Force Base or now to Montgomery. We do it in the, in the town itself and brief all the new wing commanders, the spouses, the group commanders to talk about the importance of housing. Uh, and when we look at it, we, we say that housing became a strategic problem for us to the point that our airmen and their families felt like they couldn't come to us, that their best route was to go to Congress or to go to the media. So we've really put a focus on this, not just the Air Force, but it was an, a cross-service, a cross-Department of Defense requirement. So we have been providing regular updates to Congress. We've been working closely with the other services and the Department of Defense and implementing the FY20 NDA and National Defense Authorization Act language. So in doing that, we've, we've actually made great progress on hiring folks. We've hired, we had authorization to hire 218 people. We brought 217 of those on board already. The only one is we're awaiting the last hiring of a resident advocate out in Colorado. But uh, what we're doing is a little bit of that was policy and oversight. But we also realized that we needed a little more help on our housing management office, um, our military housing offices, and then also the resident advocates. And that's probably one of the things that I'm most excited about. We brought in folks, a lot of them end up being military spouses or former military, who are almost like a patient advocate Mm -hmm. who can really help uh, tackle some of the identifying what residents need that they couldn't necessarily go to the project owner for, whether it's connecting them with legal or connecting them with medical to address their concerns in housing as an independent party who can go directly to the wing commander. So we still, we have 51 lines of effort we pursued in the Air Force, a lot of different things uh, to try to get after some of the issues that were identified. And um, we're slowly bringing back up and winning the trust of of our airmen and our families and and our guardians now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one thing we realize is that we can't take our eye off the ball. This is going to be an enduring problem. And it's these are 50 year transactions and we've got to get it right because our we, we say people are our number one asset and we mean it. So we've got to retain not just the airmen and guardian, but their families. Yeah. And I think we'd all love not, this not to be a conversation for Congress to be <laughs> involved with. Yeah. So I think I think I mean, it's unfortunate when it gets to the point where we're like I said, we lost the trust. So folks feel like their only recourse is to contact the House Armed Services right. Committee and say, hey, the the Air Force is not you know, that that's horrible. And, and none of us want to be in that position. And it's really neat. And the feedback that I get from the wing commanders as we do this course is I understand the importance of this. This is my job. Right. And I think before some had looked at it's privatized housing, it's off the installation, it's kind of hand off, hands off, uh, like it is off the installation on the installation. And we've had to come back and say, no, this, this really is a priority for they're, they're your airmen, they're your guardians. So you should be involved. You should know who your project owners are. And so we're seeing a lot more involvement and better response. And if COVID, COVID was a challenge right. with housing, right. the inability to get in and do some of the routine maintenance. So there was, there were some problems there like they were in off base housing, but I think, I think we're getting after it with a lot of these initiatives. Let's switch gears to climate change. Mm. It's a big priority for the Biden administration and, and, you know, the secretary has has spoken on it. Give us a sense of how you're seeing this play out in the air force and what the air force is going to be looking to do to combat these issues, both on and off the base. Yeah. So, um, a number of efforts looking at climate. So we've actually already completed a climate, uh, 
an installation resiliency analysis where we look at uh, different changing weather weather patterns and weather effects. Uh, we completed that this last year, and that looks at whether it's it's fires or flooding or hurricanes or earthquakes. What are the potential or water scarcity? What are the potential climate impacts that we have on our installations? We're starting to work those into our installation planning process so that we can program and plan for them. We also do consider these when we're considering whether whether to station a new action. If you have an area that's a flying mission and you have uh, areas of non-attainment, how does that impact our flying mission? If you have areas that flood and folks cannot get to work, how does that impact our, our flying mission? I know there was a discussion earlier about, you know, can you look at Tyndall being a good example with Hurricane Michael? Should we have rebuilt there? Well, of course, you know, much like the Navy needs to be coastal, the Air Force needs a lot of access to great airspace and range. So a lot of times we don't have as much flexibility, or we could, but then your fuel usage and getting to and from is so cost prohibitive. So we've looked at what are things that we can do with construction? What are things that we can do with mitigation uh, from the Offit flood to the Tyndall hurricane that can get after some of these climate initiatives? But absolutely, Secretary of Defense came in, Secretary Austin said this is one of his priorities. And that's been heard across the department, all of the departments, the Department of Air Force, we have an active working group and every couple weeks they're meeting to walk through how can we get after greenhouse gas emissions? What are the changes we may need to make to our construction? How do we look at this in basing? Uh, are there things we can do in electric vehicles? So I could talk about any of right, those at right. length, but yeah, a lot of initiatives. Yeah, I'd be interested, you know, we talk about in the beginning of the show, we mentioned this, that a lot of these challenges have to be solved in a one community solution, meaning both on the off and off the base. And I think climate change is one of those. How, how do you see, and, and resilience overall, what, what do you see as ways that communities, regions, and states could support mm. what you're trying to do on the base? Yeah, so actually, uh, some of the basing actions have, have recently looked at this. It's really interesting of, of how resilient is the installation. That's hugely important from us from a mission perspective. And we say the Department of the Air Force is uniquely qualified and that we're the service that fights from our bases. Uh, so any interruption in the entire mission chain in, in energy resiliency or water resiliency can result in our inability to perform our mission. So this is where we very rarely are the sole generator and source of our own utilities. So we need to rely on the local community and we need to work with them. So, um, you know, some of the things that we're doing, like our Black Start exercises, we've done three of those last year. We have three planned where we're actually working hand in hand to see if we actually lost or had to go to our, our coop site, an alternative location, how would we perform our mission given that our mission doesn't stop. And in fact, depending on the source that would cause us to lose the, the electricity as an example, our mission may be just beginning. So how critical that is to work hand in hand with the communities on those type of exercises. Explain what you do in those Black Start things, because yeah. I think it's kind of an interesting exercise. Yeah. So so really interesting, again, partnering where, and, and some of this is planned, but where you actually have a, a Black Start, if you will. So the inability to access and looking from start to finish, maybe you have a diesel generator backup that would help in this situation. But if you have a a key node that's not working, especially if it's relying on the community, what does that do to your ability to perform your mission? Are there workarounds? If there's not, and it's a single point of failure, there's no resiliency, is that an area where we ought to invest in the future? Should we be investing in there now? Is there another resource? Can we rely on the community or private industry? Is this something we need to bring in-house to be able to address this? And we kind of we kind of look at the whole mission, not just a singular installation, but from start to finish, mm -hmm. what are the potential uh, risks? What are the areas Areas where we don't have that resiliency, those ought to be our priority. So that's how we're looking. At I know, it. I know, we're running out of time, and you know, we're glad to have you here virtually. We, I think, all want to be back in person mm -hmm. soon because I think the interaction with communities has been so important over the years. And 
you've seen that, you know, I know you've had some interaction with communities, but it's been more limited in this this environment. What's your message to communities right now? What, what would you be telling them in terms of how they should be sort of positioning themselves with a lot of the change that's happening in DOD? Yeah, I think um, we need to rely on communities, especially as we look at, and everyone always complains about shrinking budgets, right, and increased mission. But really, what are the things that communities can provide that could perhaps offer us a little bit of savings? So actually, let me let me break that up into a couple parts. Number one, taking care of our airmen and our families. We've really put a focus this last year on supportive military families and are looking at, other than deploy to dwell rates, the number two and number three things that families care about are spouse employment, reciprocity, and school quality. So communities can really help. And a lot of states have had amazing legislation in getting after the spouse licensure and reciprocity so that when airmen and guardians and their families come in, they're not having to be a geo batch because right. their spouse can't move with them and the quality of schools. That's one huge thing that, mm -hmm. and all of the secretaries had, had an emphasis on that. And we're now looking at it in our basing processes, but community partnership is another huge way, you know, working almost all of the installations have a point of contact now where communities can, can reach out to us. A lot of times we say we steal good ideas from the communities. If there's something that we can be doing, or if one installation is doing it and a community can support that on another installation, let's share those good ideas. If there's things that are working uh, that could be done better by a county through an intergovernment support agreement with us, please come to us with those things because we certainly are not the generator. We like to be the consumer of the good ideas that communities have. But no, we've been really fortunate to have a lot of amazing uh, communities around our Air Force bases that have supported our community partnership, have helped with schools, spouse employment, licensure, and reciprocity. Yeah, and as we see the the list of issues and topics communities are involved with keeps growing. Mm. And so I think this engagement is really going to be important. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was great to see you again in person. Yes. I hope everyone will be able to have together here soon, but we really appreciate you coming in today. Thank so, you. For our One Community, One Military segment today, we keep it close to home. Today's show is actually the last event Joe Driscoll will be joining us as ADC president. When Joe took over the organization two years ago, he really had no idea what was ahead. Despite the chaos of the past year, ADC has survived and thrived, and that's in no small part to Joe's leadership. We asked Joe to join us again and just to spend a few minutes reflecting on the past two years and how ADC has continued to evolve. Joe, welcome back. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, next Tuesday does mark the end of my almost two-year tenure as president of ADC. Uh, when he's elected, uh, Bob Ross of Connecticut will be a great successor, and I look forward to supporting him, uh, our other officers, and our great board members in, in my role as past president. Uh, as Tim mentioned, uh, the last year has been a trying time for ADC because of the COVID-19 pandemic and tragic effects on our country. Uh, along with most other national organizations, we've been forced to cancel all of our in-person events for the past 13 months. Uh, it's just a fact. Uh, this has been a particularly difficult time because ADC is an organization that, as folks know, prides itself in sponsoring events where our members and partners can gather face-to-face -face and learn from one another. Um, I'm proud we were able to shift to a virtual format, and I think our staff did a great job of rising to the challenge of communicating in a, in a much different way. Uh, our programs like our ADC Summit Series last fall and the current ADC Live event that we're all on today have drawn lots of interest. And I think we have been able to continue sharing important news and best practices of interest to, to our members. 
And I'm proud to note that we have continued to use our annual opinion survey uh, to allow us to understand what's important to our members uh, and act accordingly. Uh, we were also able to keep our finances at a, a very strong level when other nonprofits struggled, negotiated and signed a new management agreement with uh, Tim, Tim Ford and his staff uh, that will continue their good work for several years to come. And speaking of COVID, uh, late last summer, we launched the COVID Military Support Initiative or CMSI, uh, which I think was a very important and impactful step. CMSI allowed us in our role to focus on supporting military families through the this difficult time, and it drew lots of interest from the Department of Defense um, and other partners around the country. During the past two years, we were successful in working with Congress to fund the Defense Communities Infrastructure Pro uh, Program, or DSIP, which the congressman uh, talked well about earlier, and making a case why the Office of Economic Adjustment should become the DOD Office of Local Defense Community Cooperation, OLDCC. It's going to take me some time to figure out uh, calling it that rather than OEA. Um, which broadened its mission from being just the BRAC agency to being a full service partner with uh, uh, for us and others at DOD. Uh, our Federal Outreach and Advisory Committee, or FOAC, and our staff did a marvelous job of working with Congress on these milestone achievements. And, and finally, I'm proud that we were able to uh, last year launch our One Military, One Community Initiative, which lays out five policy goals for the coming year with an initial focus on uh, having ADC providing support to our member communities on racial equity issues. This was a move, I can tell you, not without detractors, put ADC on the right side of history. Above all, though, we've worked hard to reinforce the fact that our military installations uh, really can't ensure readiness and can't provide resilience our nation needs without the support of defense communities across the country. That seems like a self-evident fact, to, I'm sure, to all of us. We find it necessary to remind policymakers and the military itself as often as we possibly can. So as, as my term ends, I want to say thanks to the many partners and friends across the country who've supported ADC during these past two years and to the wonderful board of directors and the staff who work to keep our organization strong and responsive to our members. Thank you very much. Glad to join everyone today and signing off from here. Well, Joe, we, we thank you for all you've done for ADC and remind you, you're really not actually going anywhere, you know, because as past president, you're on the board for two more years. So we'll, we'll appreciate having your insight and leadership in the years to come. Just when I thought I was out, <laughs> they're pulling me back. <laughs> We're going to be back in two weeks for another packed episode. Joining us in the studio will be acting assistant secretary of defense for sustainment, Paul Kramer. And we'll also be joined in the studio by an old ADC friend, Ivan Bolden, Chief of Army Partnerships, both public and private. In the meantime, we're excited to announce that all of our segments, full-length episodes are now available on our website. Catch up on any news or interviews that you may have missed by visiting adc.live slash episodes. We'll also post exclusive bonus content that we didn't show on air. Until then, from our studio here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for watching ADC Live.